Welcome to another episode of Lake Time. Thanks, Matt. Whoa. Hold on. I didn't finish the whole title. Okay. Welcome to another episode of Lake Time, the Lake of the Woods Brewing Company podcast. Thank you, Matt. You're welcome, Lyndon. I was actually welcoming our audience, but um, you're a co-host. Thanks. I'm the host, and you're the co-host. Nice. Yeah. So you have to do all the work then. <laughs> I just decided that now. Maybe I should introduce myself anyway. My name is Lyndon Fraze. Very happy to be here, Matt Kennedy. Lyndon, what do you think about Lake of the Woods? I think it's the number one fresh water source in all of Canada. So above the Great Lakes. Yes, I prefer it. Well, that's a fair argument because the Great Lakes are quite cold. So Lake of the Woods is definitely one of the largest sources of fresh water in Canada after the Great Lakes. And, you know, if Lake of the Woods isn't clean and pure, then what is Lake of the Woods Brewing Company, right? It's dirty beer. It's dirty beer because their beer is made from that water. It's already it already looks kind of brown when you look at the beer. You don't want it to be anymore. I think that's just comes with the territory of beer. Don't ah. don't worry about the brown. So today's guest is Tika Newton, who is with the Climate Action Network for Canada. Can and she's an important guest because climate change affects us all, and it definitely affects Lake of the Woods. And it's just setting the world on fire. Yeah. So. so in this interview, she talked about how it directly affects Lake of the Woods, not just in the future, but now already. I feel like whether you're a skeptic, whether you're on board with uh, the need for action against climate change, this is a good episode to listen to because we really do present both sides of the argument. And uh, Tika, you know, responds to both sides accordingly. So what do you say we jump uh, You're wanting to jump into some clean, very clean water into lake time. That's exactly what I want. Rather than into filthy water. Yeah, let's take a clean, rippleless dive into some clean lake time. The kind of cool, crisp water you'd like your beer to be made out of. <laughs> yeah, let's take a dive into that. Okay, let's do it. Tell us first. Let's get this out of the way. What What, what is it that I you do? do? What is Climate Action Network Canada? Um, so I currently work for Climate Action Network Canada. It's um, Canada's oldest and largest environmental organization with a mandate to work on climate change. Uh, the organization's been around for 30 years. So celebrating our 30th anniversary this year, which is pretty exciting. Um, it's the regional node for Climate Action Network International. Climate Action Network was established uh, following the very first meeting of global scientists that went on to form the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So the IPCC, it's that body of scientists that produced the kind of scary report that came out in October that told us we basically have like a little over a decade to cut global emissions in half. So when that body first started meeting, um, it was through the United Nations and Climate Action Network was the civil society response to that. So when all the scientists started gathering, there was a need to bring together civil society, like non-governmental organizations, to also start carrying some of the load to advocate for climate change, to work with governments, to create policy, to address climate change, and all that kind of thing. Um, so that's what CAN does. Uh, and CAN International is based in Europe, um, but it operates in countries all over the world. There are a number of different regional nodes. Um, Canada and the U.S. both are regional nodes in North America. 
Um, Climate Action Network Canada is one of the biggest of the international nodes. We only have four people working on staff, but we currently have 105 member organizations across Canada, and they're all civil society nonprofits, but they're really familiar names to most people. Um, they'd be like all the major, almost all the major environmental organizations in Canada, but also many of the big trade unions, so Canadian Labour Congress, United Steelworkers, Unifor, uh, Canadian Union of Public Employees, like there are a whole bunch of them. Uh, lots of faith groups, the United Church of Canada, Kairos, Citizens for Public Justice, lots of healthcare groups, a whole range of different things, and then like small grassroots community groups as well. And I actually got involved with Climate Action Network when I was the Executive Director for Transition Initiative Kenora because we were a member organization. And so that was kind of my path into working with CAN. So all of these organizations you just listed off, the unions, the church groups, the environmental organizations, mm -hmm. those are all, how are those connected with CAN? Um, so they're all members of CAN. Uh, they pay an annual membership due. Um, they all have a mandate to work on climate change in some way in the course of their daily work. So for example, for an organization like Canadian Labour Congress, which is a major labour organization, they have internal policies around health and safety, health, safety, and environment. Um, and, and they're mostly targeted at ensuring workers have safe spaces to work in and safe environments to work in. Um, and so there's a whole suite of policies that Canadian Labour Congress and its members would advocate for. And many of them are aligned with the goals of the climate movement generally. So um, ensuring like a livable future <laughs> that's uh, got assured jobs for all, like those sorts of things. And what is your responsibilities sort of day to day? Are you just uh, constantly ringing a bell to try and make uh, organizations and the world at large listen to what they need to hear about climate it, change? Yeah, my job is pretty variable. So my official title is membership campaign coordinator, which means that I look after membership services to all the members. Um, so that's anything like uh, making sure that they uh, have connections among each other. Right? So we do a lot of network convening. Um, we hold bi-weekly conference calls that bring together our members to share news and information that might be relevant to them. Um, but a lot of what my job actually focuses on is domestic climate policy development and implementation. So it's not working directly with government, but working outside of government to advocate for the best possible climate policies that we can land with government and then negotiating that with government as well and with our members and pulling more people in and growing the climate movement and... Um, a lot of what I've worked on this year has actually been um, helping with the coalition behind the Canadian Green New Deal, the Pact for a Green New Deal. So there are now like 100 and something organizations that are part of that coalition. But CAN was one of the original ones that, that started this project off back in January. So uh, something like a labor group, like the uh, well, these unions that you mentioned, so so, for example, Unifor, they they represent the auto workers, right? That's like CAW folded yep. into them with CEP and a bunch yep. of other stuff. So, th so from the perspective of someone that's working in a factory uh, in Ontario building GM, mm -hmm. how, like, how does the average worker there think about the fact that the union, part of their union dues is going towards this really long-term plan 
that really inv- needs like macro participation across the whole world for it to do anything. How how do they think about that or or don't they think about that? Well, I don't know. I mean, I haven't gone to like a, a local meeting to really talk to the members of the trade unions on that level. But a lot of the theory of change that's involved in, in movement building, like for the climate movement, actually comes from labor organizing. Like it's the same kind of idea of building that solidarity by building a movement that's based on a massive number of people engaging on on a policy or an idea and coming together and, you know, building solidarity around that. So, so it's not like it's a model that's unfamiliar to, I think, to labor unions. Um, and it's funny you mentioned Unifor in particular, because they actually came out with a particularly exciting announcement not that long ago around the GM factories in Ontario that they're, they're aiming to see electric vehicles being produced at some of the facilities that formerly produced internal combustion engine parts. They're now looking to do EVs there. So it's that kind of transitional economic planning that we're that we're trying to foster together with the labor organizations. Um, Canadian Labor Congress, so our contact there, Tara Peel, she is the she's on our board of directors, but she's also CLC's uh, health safety and environment person. But she was one of the people on the federal government's just transition task force on coal phase out. So they're very, um, very much involved in thinking about the long term planning that needs to go into transitioning the economy like on mass. So when you're thinking about an economy that we that we have today that is so heavily based on fossil fuels, like fossil fuels are the basis of our entire energy network, and it's how we've built our society. And if we know that we have to transition off of them for the sake of the climate um, and to lower emissions, then we have to do some really careful, complex thinking about how we do that. Um, and it makes good sense to bring in the people who have the deepest expertise in understanding the energy sector. And so that ends up being coal workers and the communities that are affected by a coal phase out. Um, so that's that's a lot of the work that we're doing with the labor partners in our organization. Yeah. Yeah, actually, that's a that's a great example. It's not hard to imagine someone that's working in cars right now thinking like, wow, electric cars are clearly coming. This isn't really disputed. Mm-hmm. And so one way to have job security is to be working for a company that's actually going to be involved mm-hmm. in what the future is. And so obviously that dovetails with environmental concerns. Yeah. Yeah. We live in a time of like massive precarity. So it, it's a disruptive transitional time and it can go very badly. We know from past examples where there have been disruptive transitions. For example, the Atlantic fishery with cod, we've seen what happens when you don't plan properly, things collapse. There was an entire collapse of that region's economy, and it was catastrophic for the people involved. And that's absolutely what we want to avoid. We know enough to avoid that, um, and it just takes some dedication and and hard work. <laughs> that was because of overfishing? So the, the Atlantic cod fishery was a... That was a complicated thing. It was overfishing, but it was a combination of um, government quotas being set that were too high for what could be replenished naturally for the fish stocks um, and the government continually not listening to the science and defaulting to listening to public pressure. So, I mean, that's always the problem for government. You're, If you're in government, you can have 
this whole body of evidence on which you can base policy decisions. But at the end of the day, you're also accountable to the people that put you in office. And mm -hmm. if the policy decisions you're making are adversely affecting your constituents, you're not going to get back into office. And so that's very much what happened in Atlantic Canada, that that for political reasons, the types of policies that were required to be implemented didn't get implemented soon enough. And the fish stocks got overfished and collapsed, ultimately. And sadly, what actually happened is that a lot of them went to Alberta, to northern Alberta, to work in the oil fields. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's like a huge diaspora of Atlantic Canadians, particularly Newfoundlanders, in Fort McMurray. Um, I don't know if you recall a couple of years ago when the big Fort McMurray fire happened, people started evacuating and they were like when their homes got lost, they started going back home to Atlantic Canada. There was a group of us here in town that were part of a network across the country that were helping these evacuees get back home, like offering them food vouchers and gas money and stuff like that. Um, and so I had the opportunity to meet probably half a dozen different families or couples that were driving back to Newfoundland from Alberta. And it was just heartbreaking because they were people that were like in their 50s and 60s. They'd lived through the collapse of the Atlantic fishery. And now they were facing having to start all over again because of a fire. Like it was just so heartbreaking. And you can see how precarious that kind of work that is when it's it, when it's uh, tied to a boom and bust cycle resource economy. Yeah, it was just it was right. eye opening. So the fire is one thing, but if the economy, if there's more money to be made there, then people would have just rebuilt, kind of thing. That's how that's connected, or because the fire seems somewhat disconnected from like the price of oil. Well, completely disconnected from the price of yeah, oil. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it has nothing to do with the production of oil, other than like the climate connection. To oh, it, I see. Is yeah. pretty direct. Right, but, more fires. But I because mean, of, economically yes. speaking, there's that uh, dislocation that happened with you know, Newfoundlanders going to Alberta to seek out new prosperity. And then like it worked for a while. And then because of things co totally out of their control, like a wildfire that, you know, it gets all reset again and they have to start over again. It's just kind of heartbreaking. And Fort McMurray, you know, I mean, it is uh, recovering to some extent, but the boom days that we saw in 2010, 2011 are certainly not there anymore. The price of oil is nowhere near what it was back then. So it's interesting to look at these other examples, like, so we're talking about climate change, but then fishing is, it's a, basically a totally different thing. So they never did work that out. Like it's still in a, in a bad state because of yeah, previous I mean, mistakes. The, so the cod fishery is, uh, as far as I know, it's still closed. Uh, the fish stocks are recovering, but it's pretty slow. And I mean, this was a collapse that happened in the early 1990s. So we're talking like a full generation ago, um, I remember I went to school at UBC. I did both my degrees there in ecology. And one of my ecology profs, Dr. Carl Walters, was one of the head fisheries biologists advising the federal government and the Newfoundland government on the management of its Atlantic cod stocks. Um, yeah, and that would have been in like 1994, we were talking about how imminent the collapse was. And sure enough, it happened before I graduated from that program. Wow. So it was predicted and, you know, oh, yeah. and listened. And it was there you go. very clear. <laughs> oh, okay. It so there's kind of like today. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> so there are, there is one great success story that, though, that I'd love to get your take on. So the, for a long time, the ozone, the hole in the ozone yeah. layer was, so this is CFCs that was yeah. there. Yeah. So, 
So the ozone hole was uh, caused by, you know, um, releasing ozone-depleting chemicals, chlorofluorocarbons and hydrofluorocarbons. Um, and Canada took a lead role in phasing those out through the Montreal Protocol. So that happened in the 1980s. Um, and it was it's one of the examples that we in the climate movement turn to all the time as a really good example of an international treaty where you saw a rapid response from many countries in the world coming together to create protocols across partisan lines, across national differences, recognizing that there was an existential threat um, caused by this ozone hole. And so they agreed to phase out these harmful chemicals and it succeeded. That's amazing. So what were the drivers of that? Why would all of these countries decide to to sign on? Because it was so clear that this was going to be a disaster and there was a, a path. There's a limited number of people's behavior that would need to be changed, which would be like suppliers of, uh, was it refrigerants or Yeah, it was refrigerants aerosol? mostly, um, aerosol propellants and refrigerants. I'm not like really well versed on the history of the Montreal Protocol, but I do know that a big part of the the reason that it was so successful is that it had some pretty powerful drivers involved. Um, and in particular, it was some conservative politicians leading that. Um, so Brian Mulroney in Canada, uh, Ronald Reagan in the United States, they were both really instrumental in establishing the groundwork for um, some surprisingly ambitious environmental policies. And it was very pragmatic. Like it wasn't, it's interesting because we now see that there's this really strong partisan divide between conservatives and progressives over climate change and climate policy. But that's not a division that has a historical basis. Like in the past, people work together across these partisan lines because they recognize that if you have an unhealthy environment, <laughs> your society doesn't flourish. So yeah, they they managed to get it together then, and we're hoping that we can do the same in very short order. It might be uh, also a more noticeable success story, I guess, in that CFCs aren't something that we're so ingrained like in society in the same way, at least that oil is, with like so much power behind. Well, sure, oil yeah. And, I mean, and such a heavy dependency. Yeah, it was definitely a narrower problem. Right. Yeah. And there is still problems with some F gases, right, that are, are causing greenhouse effects as well. They're outsized yes. for their mass, right? Like yeah. it, we always talk about CO2 because that's what's the, the bulk of the mass is going into. But you already know I about this, I suspect right? you've read Project Drawdown. <laughs> I, I, I haven't. Like. I haven't. Okay, no. so there's a, there's a book uh, called Project Drawdown and like the whole movement that's behind that um, that advocates for particular actions you can take that that draw down the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere or, you know, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And apparently one of the largest contributors or like the largest, the biggest bang for your buck is to get rid of refrigerants. Um, I don't know if you guys will recall, if you noticed this even in the news, probably about three months ago, there was a little bit of a brouhaha in the national news media because Loblaw got a large grant from the federal government to switch out all of its uh, coolers, all of its refrigerators. And everybody and, was kind of And mad. everybody is like, come on. Like, Loblaw, the company that, like... They're rich. They don't need They're rich, and they screwed us all fridges. on the bread. Yeah. Like, <laughs> come on. But the reason that they got that money is because they actually put in a really solid proposal, apparently. I haven't read it, but... Um, 
but apparently the proposal they put in made a lot of sense. Like they are one of the biggest national chains that has refrigerants. And if they can phase those out, that makes a huge drop in Canada's emissions inventory. So it's a good investment to get rid of the the GHG refrigerants. Um, so there's actually something called the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol <laughs> that came into force on January 1st, 2019, and that targets HFCs, hydrofluorocarbons, and they're another class of refrigerant um, that came in to replace the CFCs. So when the Montreal Protocol phased out ozone-depleting chemicals. They thought that the HFCs would be a better class of chemicals to use, but it turns out they drive greenhouse uh, warming, global warming. So, Damn. Yeah, and they're actually a far more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. So we've got to get rid of them too. <laughs> so that's what's underfoot or afoot right now this year. How did you... I'm gonna. I'm gonna kind of change the subject here. So then uh, it's good. You know, I was gonna ask another question about f gases, but I think we can move on. From that. <laughs> yeah. This isn't a science podcast. <laughs> well, maybe while we're in this break, I should open this. Okay. So this is the Lake of the Woods Brewing Company podcast. We haven't really mentioned that yet this episode, <laughs> but uh, we brought in one of their newest beers. Is this one of their newest beers? No. What we brought in today, it's still suiting. We brought in Border Dispute, and um, you know the Bruco is about to open a new brewery across the border, so that's relevant. That's right, in the excited states. In the excited United States. Uh, now, Tika, I'm going to go for honesty here. You're not a big beer drinker, but you have a very um, useful use for one of their beers i've got to say lake of the woods brewing company sultana gold makes the very best pizza dough i've ever had so it's really good for it i've tried all the different uh brews that the brewing company makes and the sultana is the best in the pizza dough recipe for pizza dough yeah okay yeah well this is a coffee ipl so maybe maybe do you like coffee i'd love coffee so let's give it a try let's try it Cheers. Cheers. Ah. <laughs> now, it won't be in the episode. Um, do you like it for real? Yeah, actually, it's good. Okay. Then that cool. can be in the episode. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's delightful. Good. I don't know. No, it's so, good. So even a non-beer drinker likes Border Dispute. You heard it here first. Yeah, it is good. Now, my subject change was simply, how did you become this person how did you become a climate <laughs> activist uh, environmentalist uh, yes it's a bit of a long and winding road so uh, i've always been involved in environmental things all my life i grew up in a family that really helped to shape my values around environmental not so much activism but appreciation um my mom's super passionate about the woods and she knows all the plants and everything so uh, when I was a little kid, my parents used to take my sister and me out of school at least one day a month and we go have nature day and we go look for rare orchids or something and, you know, different things in nature around Kenora and we take photos and then we go back to our school. This was in the 80s. So I'd go back to school and do a slideshow like with actual 35 millimeter slides for my school just for fun. Yeah. Nerd. <laughs> I've owned nerddom my entire life. Uh, but we were really into appreciating nature. Um, and so when I graduated from Beaver Bray, I decided I'd go out to Vancouver. And uh, it was the mid-90s. I had 
become aware of the the war in the woods, the battle to save Clockwit Sound and the big old growth forest out there. And I really wanted to be part of that. So I enrolled in environmental studies at, at UBC along with nine other people. And that wasn't enough to make the course be a go. <laughs> so I didn't get to do environmental studies. Um, I ended up doing an undergrad degree and then a master's degree in plant biology, specializing in evolutionary genetics. Um, but during my time at UBC, I ran the Student Environment Center and was, was involved in that way and kind of got a little bit of a grounding in environmental activism just by being part of the student government movement and and student environmental activism, which back then was mostly focused on, uh, well, in the mid-90s, it was focused on forestry. Um, and then toward the end of my undergrad degree, it got a lot more focused on like globalization, international trade, that sort of thing. There was a really famous um, APEC summit, the Asia Pacific Economic Summit that happened in Vancouver. Um, and Jean Chrétien famously, <laughs> there was an incident with pepper spray and, um, it, it all went rather badly. Um, and then a year later or so, there were riots in Seattle when the World Trade Organization was there. Like it was that kind of environment, um, in the late nineties, I think that, sort of introduced me to the global dimension of environmental activism. And at the time, it wasn't really for me. So I, I actually wasn't really that involved back then. Um, I ended up doing cancer research for a while, for like five years. Um, but then when Mike and I met out in Vancouver, Mike's also from Kenora, we ended up... That's her husband. Yeah, that's my husband, <laughs> uh, for anyone who doesn't know us. <laughs> uh we met out in Vancouver. We got married in nineteen or in two thousand four. Had a baby right away, and decided it was time to move home. Um, and He's we'll, from Kenora as well, though. Yeah, but you met in Vancouver. We did for like the first time, or you kind of oh, like that's he, cool. yeah, we had never talked to each other before. It's a we good icebreaker out there. Oh, you're from Kenora, right? Yeah, we had mutual friends. Yeah, similar interests and stuff. So our paths kept intersecting and. We ended up being together. Um, anyhow, when we moved back home, I couldn't keep doing the work that I'd been doing in Vancouver. I was doing cancer genomics research at the BC Cancer Agency. There wasn't much calling for that here. Um, and so I, after raising kids for a couple of years, I ended up working for the University of Manitoba, coordinating um, a grad studies project that got me really involved in community development and sustainability. Um, and from there, I guess I just got much more invested in thinking about sustainability, environmental stewardship, that sort of thing. Um, I ended up taking on a role with the city of Kenora's environmental advisory committee. And then I chaired that for two terms of council. This is actually the first year I haven't been on that committee in like a decade. It feels a bit strange, but it's nice to have handed it over to new people. Um, and I also got involved in the International Joint Commission, the Watershed Board. So I've been um, a regional advisor to the Watershed Board since 2013, and I've been a board member for the past couple of years. Um, and I chair the Watershed Board's engagement committee and their community uh, engagement or community advisory group. And I'm also moving into a role as being the climate advisor for the Watershed Board. But you asked how I got involved in climate activism. So climate is a specific subset of my environmental interests. Um, and that happened because I started fighting a pipeline. <laughs> so in, uh, I guess, late 2013, 
um, there was a group of us locally that had actually been involved in the campaign to save the experimental lakes area when its funding got cut in 2012. Um, a bunch of us banded together and did everything we could at the local level to try to advocate for the ELA. Um, right at about the time that that campaign was successful and had ended and we were seeing that IISD was stepping forward to take on ownership, we found out that there was a proposal on the table to see a massive oil pipeline um, come through our region. So the conversion of the, one of the existing, one of the four existing natural gas pipelines to carry heavy crude oil from Alberta to Atlantic Canada. Uh, we were, the group of us was pretty concerned about that for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, we were concerned about spill risks. And the more we learned about the impacts of um, this kind of infrastructure expansion on climate change, the more concerned we got about the climate aspect of it. So we formed Transition Initiative Kenora. Um, I guess we probably started meeting late 2013, early 2014. We incorporated, I think, in the late 2014 or early 2015. And we took on a role as interveners in the National Energy Board review of the Energy East Pipeline Project. Uh, we were successful in getting legal representation through EcoJustice, which is a natu uh, national legal charity. Um, and together with our legal team, we filed motions with the National Energy Board that ended up resulting in the recusal of the review panel um, because they had taken some meetings really early in the review process with a paid lobbyist for the project proponent, and that was against the rules for the NEB. Um, so, yeah, so we put forward a, a motion... Um, suggesting that there was the apprehension of bias um, that was tainting the entire process. And the board agreed with us. They recused the entire review panel. We then put forward a further motion that said that everything that had been put on record so far was now tainted with this apprehension of bias and that the whole review needed to start over from scratch. And they agreed with us on that. <laughs> and so those two major delays to the review process um, combined with a whole bunch of public outcry, particularly in Quebec, um, created an environment where the proponent decided that the project was no longer in their interest and, and they cancelled it. Um, so you won. Yeah. It was... On a technicality. <laughs> for our part, it was a technicality. Um, but for the larger climate movement, it was because of some really... Um, <laughs> some complicated campaigning um, and movement building, we learned a lot of lessons in that. Uh, I think the reason that the pipeline campaigns were initiated by environmental organizations or like why the environmental movement, climate movement got involved in the pipeline campaigns was a recognition that there was no plan in place in Canada to control the growth of Canada's largest source of emissions. So the largest, most rapidly growing source of emissions in the country is our oil production, oil and gas production. Um, and we currently don't have any plans in place to curtail that, to wind that down in a stepwise fashion, to, to do the things that are necessary to keep us in compliance with the Paris Agreement, to keep global emissions like on a downward trajectory instead of an upward one. So the, the production produces the, the – or releases the CO2? How? Um, so 
Canada, if you look at Canada's emissions inventory, 26% of our national emissions, or like about a quarter, a little over a quarter, comes from the production of oil and gas. Really? And the reason is because of the way that we mine, like the majority of heavy oil in Canada now comes from the oil sands. It's not really so much the big open pit mines anymore. It's more in situ steam-assisted gravity drainage mining, which is where... There's basically a wellhead um, that blasts steam into the earth and superheats the the solid bitumen. Like it's like a peanut buttery uh, sand oil mix. It's like asphalt. The stuff that, you know, you see the city crews driving around filling the potholes. It's sort of like that. Um, so they blast steam in and that liquefies it. And then they essentially vacuum it up out of there. But to do that requires a huge amount of energy. And so there's actually more energy put into the extraction of that oil than you get yeah, out of the oil. Ridiculous. Um, but they use natural gas. So natural gas is much more abundant and it's relatively cheaper. And so the natural gas gets used to create the energy that creates the steam <laughs> that melts the stuff and sucks it out. And so we end up with massive emissions. It's yeah, really emissions intensive. And there are technologies that are being developed to, or like, you know, industry has been trying to develop technologies for a long time to try to reduce the emissions intensity of the process. Um, they've tried, you know, adopting different types of solvents. To, so rather than using just straight water, using some kind of a solvent, like a hydrochemical solvent to do that. Um, and that's less emissions intensive, but then you run into the questions around like, do, do you, you want to drink to be, that after? blasting that, kind of that yeah. into your water table like that's not necessarily great either um so i mean it's a difficult proposition to try to clean that like to try to clean clean up the processing uh, end of that so yeah so canada's emissions from oil and gas production are really high um and it's the source of emissions that's continuing to grow in our country um the next most emissions intensive source is transportation and like we talked about a little while ago, uh, there is already a bit of a disruptive transition happening where we're starting to see electric vehicles edge in on that market. And so it's conceivable that we could see a complete um, changing of the automotive fleet where it's much less emiss emissions intensive, but we don't see that same trajectory yet for oil and gas production. Let me throw the typical arguments at you and you okay. can give me the informed responses <laughs> so I'll know them next time. First argument uh, uh, for the electric car is that uh, it's no cleaner of an energy to use electricity because of like coal plants making electricity in Southern Ontario and stuff like that. It depends on where you are, what jurisdiction you're in, whether that argument carries any weight at all. So in Ontario, our electricity mix is really clean. Most of Canada, the electricity mix is already very clean. There are only four provinces that still continue to use coal for generating electricity. Uh, Alberta, Saskatchewan, New Brunswick, and Nova Scotia. Um, Canada, as part of the Powering Past Coal Alliance and its coal phase-out plans, is uh, targeting a 2030 shutdown for most of those plants. So they're getting phased out. Um, and we hope that Canada's electricity mix will be pretty much entirely clean by then. Coal-free. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if, you're, if your energy source is not as emissions-intensive, like electricity, yeah, it's much cleaner than combusting fossil fuels. Okay, here's the next argument, and it's for pipelines. <laughs> <laughs> so anytime I read a pipeline debate, there's always someone saying, 
look, we're still a massive oil dependency and it's more environmentally friendly to, you know, while we work on phasing out oil to transport oil that we still need through pipelines than on trains, et cetera. And it enhances the use of local oil, I guess, instead of the yeah. bringing in foreign so there, oil. Yeah, that's, <laughs> oh, that's a familiar one. Uh, so that's a, there are a few things to unpack there. Um, one is, yeah, uh, moving things by pipeline is generally a safe practice. Um, that said, there have been lots of spills, like lots and lots of documented spills on a number of different pipelines and on rail as well. Um, the thing that we're arguing for is not shutting down all pipeline capacity right now. It's saying we don't need any more expansion. Let's we're good with what it. we've got. We've got enough to continue to export what we are producing and what we currently need. We don't need to augment that. <laughs> we don't need to make the problem worse. So that's really all that these pipeline campaigns have been focused on is to ensure that there's no further expansion. Mm -hmm. It's not, there hasn't yet been a campaign to talk about phasing out any existing pipelines. Though I would imagine that that's going to be part of the mix at some point in the next decade. Like we're going to have to be getting pretty serious about talking about how we do a, a managed transition and do it in a way that doesn't leave people stranded and unemployed. Um, so invest in green energy. Well, invest in green <laughs> energy, but it's not like it's not realistic to expect that there's going to be a one-to-one -one transition mm -hmm. for an oil worker to to immediately transition to working on installing solar panels. Like that's not realistic. It's sometimes a different skill set. Sometimes it's the same one. But there's not necessarily the same level of job security that's involved. And so this is all part of the conversation that we're having, particularly with our labor members, is, you know, what are the pieces you need to have in place to feel that your job future is secure, um, to feel that you're being respected as a worker? And if you're moving from a unionized job that has benefits and job security to moving to something that is relatively more precarious, working for a startup solar installer that doesn't have the ability to offer you those same benefits and same unionized workspaces, that's not necessarily an equitable trade-off. And so that's what we really need to be thinking about. And that's where we need government to step in and, and be contributing to this conversation. So, so you sympathize with the people who drive a big parade of trucks in protest for like the war on the oil industry. <laughs> <laughs> there is a part of me that totally sympathizes with where they're coming from with the fear that they have about their jobs and their future. Mm -hmm. Of course, they have every reason to be feeling insecure and afraid and to fight for, you know, their self-respect and their integrity and their families, like totally justified. What's not justified is assuming that it's okay to continue to produce something that we know is damaging our global atmosphere that is making life untenable for people in other parts of the world. There are people in the world already who are displaced, who are losing their homes, who are dying because of climate change. And it is not fair for workers in Canada to put their their feelings of risk and insecurity on those people and, and make them bear the consequences of it. So I think that's the line I draw, but I do have great sympathy for them at the same time. <laughs> In your position, it must be uh, really fun to watch climate change deniers be 
uh, so prevalent, especially on Facebook. Skeptics, skeptics, Liz. skeptics. Oh, it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard. Uh, it's hard in one sense. Um, like it can get really frustrating when the policies and things that we've worked on just get so watered down or they get walked back because there is either rampant denialism or, you know, most of it is driven by the fossil fuel industry having a very strong lobby and lobbying political leaders to make the decisions that are in their favor. Um, but I think the thing that I find more interesting on a personal level is engaging with actual real people who take positions that come across as climate denial or or just misunderstanding. And it is actually based in a fundamental misunderstanding. Like they just don't understand the climate science or like what's driving climate change and what the consequences and impacts of it are. And so I actually really enjoy talking with those people and finding out, you know, learning more about their story, learning what's motivating them to have the views that they're having. And often I find we're coming from really similar places. Like we're coming from places of wanting to protect our families and our communities. And we just are approaching it in a slightly different way. <laughs> and if we can find some common ground in our understanding of the problem, uh, of what's driving the problems that we both are concerned about, we actually kind of come around to, you know, a mutual understanding. Yeah, it's not like the average person on the left has a superior understanding of the science either. You know, you, no. you ask any of my friends that are on the left to describe just even what global warming is or why it's happening. It's not that complicated of a, of a concept. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting issue, I guess, to think about the psychology of of how we form opinions and how our values are shaped. And in fact, there's a whole project that I'm involved in through my work um, where we're digging into that very thing. Like how do people, what shapes their values when they declare themselves environmentalists or members of the climate movement? How do they get there? Who are, what are the influences that shape the values that they hold? Um, and you know, for a lot of us, for I think probably most of us, it's our really close in-group. So it's our family, our friends, our community. Humans are social creatures and they like to feel like they fit in. They like to feel like they have a crowd and that they feel safe in a group. And so they will espouse and reflect the views of the group, even if they're maybe not completely aligned with your own core values. So that's a really interesting thing that we've had to think about quite a lot in our messaging about how to message to groups that may not seem like natural allies to us. Um, but if you figure out, you know, what are the things that are motivating the behavior of the group, you can actually make inroads in talking and communicating with them. Well, I guess that's a part of how it gets so politicized in a way is because just people automatically are like, this is the side that I'm on. So I yeah. believe it's BS. There's a lot of identity politics mm -hmm. and it's been, it's become really toxic and it's become toxic to everybody. Um, and that's actually part of the work that we're doing this year with Climate Action Network is trying to break down that partisan divide over climate action and really trying to get everybody paddling in the same direction on this. Cause you know, there are many approaches you can take to working on climate change. Um, but we should at least all be working on it together. So one one example you used the word stewardship before to describe it. So this apparently has been a f that resonates with people who are part of the Christian Church is mm -hmm. this idea of stewardship and this mm -hmm. was a, a gift. The earth was a gift from God and it's our responsibility to take care of it. 
So just the simple change of phrasing mm-hmm. can do wonders for people's psychology. Oh, totally. There's actually, so the, the project that I was mentioning, um, it's sort of a spinoff from a larger project that's being started by a guy named George Marshall. He's based in the UK and he runs an organization called Climate Outreach. And George is a climate communicator. Um, he's worked all over the world, but lately he's mostly been working in Alberta um, on something called the Climate Narratives Project uh, or Climate Imperatives Project, where he's he's figuring out how do you communicate with absolutely any audience about climate change. And it's really interesting, like in a conservative oil producing town in Alberta, you're not going to go in there and start talking about carbon pricing and climate policies and things and hope to like (laughs) win people over. That's not going to work. But if you go in there and you talk about community solidarity and your community pride and caring for one another and having good community values and caring for your family and talking about safety, those are the things that resonate with, with people in those communities. And so you can start talking about how climate change is a fundamental risk to families and community safety. And there are really obvious examples that you can draw on. Like the fact that all of Northern Alberta is on fire right now is predicted as one of the consequent change, the flooding that we see hitting Ottawa, Montreal, Southern Ontario. Again, those are really, really (laughs) obvious present existential threats to those communities. And it's no surprise that, you know, in Quebec, even though there is a provincial government that is right-leaning, they're taking one of the most aggressive stances on tackling climate change. And it's because their communities are under constant perennial threat. Um, and the citizens have risen up and just demanded action. So even a conservative government can be an amazing climate leader. <laughs> it doesn't have to be a partisan issue. If you look at it from one direction, it seems like the conservatives could be more interested in it because it's about literally conserving the way the world is now. The radical progressive could say, well, everything has changed, isn't it? So now there's just another change. Well, I mean, there is a part of me that also accepts, yes, everything is changing all the time, and this too shall change, but let's try to make the change happen in a way that is less harmful and results in something better, not something worse. (laughs) Well, in a billion years, you know, the sun's going to evaporate the oceans anyway, so I mean... That does exist. There is definitely a whole school of thought that is like that. Um, And honestly, from where I sit in the climate movement... There's a bit of a generational divide on that one. Like you tend to get uh, older, white, privileged people holding that point of view. And the people who are just doing their damnedest to try to survive, the younger people, the marginalized people, people of color, people in developing countries, they're just fighting like hell to survive. And for them to hear people just kind of say, well, it's inevitable and, you know, change happens it's super disempowering and just really kind of gross. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of one of the schisms in the climate movement, I guess. Um, not one that we really talk about a whole lot, because I don't really think there are that many people who really, truly believe that we should do nothing or that, that there's no point in doing anything. Would you be able to tell us um, if you have any information on this? Obviously, the climate of earth has fluctuated a lot over time and it's going to continue to do that how much have humans accelerated that change do you think 
So I actually just gave a talk on this to a bunch of kids who were really fascinated by it. There have been uh, five historic mass extinction events. We're in the sixth one right now. So we were actually talking about biodiversity. But within that, we were talking about how the climate has fluctuated in the past. And yeah, the climate's been warmer and the CO2 levels have been high higher than they are right now in the past. But the types of changes that happened historically happened in geologic timescales. So they took hundreds of thousands to millions of years to happen to see an increase in carbon dioxide levels from the range of 270 parts per million to over 400 parts per million historically would have taken several hundred thousand years. In this case, with anthropomorphic climate change, we've seen that happen in less than 150 years. And there is just no way that species on Earth can adapt to that that level of change. Like, if you have hundreds of thousands of years to evolve and adapt, you can do it, and you don't necessarily lose 97% of species on Earth. Although, that has also happened in the past, um, where the change has happened even incrementally and still resulted in catastrophic loss of life and biodiversity. But this time, like, 150 years. <laughs> That's really, really fast. Um and like I was actually looking at the co uh, carbon dioxide concentrations. So you can go back and find, you know, the year you were born, what was the carbon dioxide concentration? And that's actually a thing. There's a whole thing in the climate movement where people get that number tattooed on their arm. Um, so when I was born, it was like 340 parts per million. Um, and we're now at around 410 to 415 parts per million. So it's pretty substantial increase just in the four decades I've been walking around on the planet. And that has... It's your fault. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't they say that the best thing you can do for the environment is not have kids? Yeah. That was also part of what we talked about, what the kids wanted to know about. You told the kids about. that? <laughs> well, no, because I showed them this graph. Like, there, there's a really... Um, there was a graph that got circulated or an infographic that got circulated really widely when that study came out that said the number one thing you can do to offset your emissions is not have or have one fewer child or not have mm -hmm. kids. But that's not very realistic and that's not fair. Um, you know, there are lots of reasons why I push back against that one. One is like, I look at my own kids and it's not so much that I'm trying to make myself feel better about the choice that I made to have kids, but like, who am I to deny them their right to be alive and to enjoy their lives and to feel that they have hope and, and ability? And who's to say they're not going to be the ones that solve this problem, that mm -hmm. actually get their act together and make the world much better than the way they came into it? Um, so I don't know that that's necessarily... And, and I look at parts of the world where there isn't necessarily so much luxury in the choice of whether you get to have kids or not. Um, and I think also about people who just try so hard to have kids and struggle with infertility and all kinds of issues. Like, I just think it's a much more complex social issue. It's very nuanced. And so I think just putting down a blanket statement like you shouldn't have kids is not very fair <laughs> and not very thoughtful. Um, that said, I know lots of people who, for climate reasons, have opted not to have children. Well, my cousin Mo knows a lot about this stuff, and he said the two things to do, the most important things for climate change is don't eat meat and also to kill yourself. <laughs> well, I mean, being alive does carry a certain footprint with it, doesn't it? But <laughs> I don't think we need to embrace utter nihilism just yet. What if you just choose the second one? 
Yeah, that would work too. Yeah, you don't have to do the first one if you're if you're doing yeah, the second. There's not much meat to consume if you're dead. That's true. How's climate change affecting Lake of the Woods? Ah, so this one uh, focuses an awful lot on water, uh, which is probably no surprise to people who live in this area. We have so much fresh water around here, um, and most of the ways that we're already seeing climate change impacts is in our lakes uh, and the species that live in them. So the uh, IISD Experimental Lakes Area has done a tremendous amount of work to document this. They've got a really long meteorological record that goes back to the late 60s. Um, and they've done lots of research. So I highly recommend that anybody who's really interested in digging into climate impacts in our area goes to the ELA's website because they have a whole section on climate impacts to our region. Um, but some of the the really obvious ones are we have less ice on the lake now than we used to have. So the shoulder seasons are longer Um the lake tends to freeze up later in the winter and it tends to thaw earlier in the spring than it did, you know, 40 years ago. Um, and the quality of the ice isn't necessarily as good either. Like it's more uh, light transmissible. Um, so the effect of that is that there's like a longer season for plants to grow in the water. And among those plants are algae. So we see more proliferation of algae, bigger algae blooms, that sort of thing. Um, another impact that we're seeing is something called dissolved organic carbon. So that's like the tannins that run off into the lake and make the lake water brown. So you end up with a darker colored lake. And that is partly because we're getting more precipitation that's falling in the non-frozen months. <laughs> so there's just runoff into the lakes that's making the lakes get darker. Um, and that's changing the ecology of the lakes. Uh, another impact that's happening is that because of the the changes to the overall temperature of the lakes and the light penetration and that sort of thing, we're ending up with zones where cold water fish can't survive as well. And so they're kind of getting squeezed into a narrower and narrower habitat. And we're ending up with species like lake trout being smaller um, and their populations are also getting smaller, like their body size is physically getting smaller, their populations are getting smaller. Uh, and the projections are that within 10 to 15 years, we'll actually see the extirpation of lake trout in a number of the lakes, sort of Kenora and south. So the south end of the range, um, which is... What does that mean? Pretty shocking. Extirpation. That means they're gone, that oh. they can no longer survive in those in those regions because of the changes that have happened to the ecology of the lake as a result of climate change. Um, there's some other really notable things that are happening that probably most people don't really think about, but the wind patterns have changed. Um, so one thing I notice is that it's windy here a lot more than it used to be. I agree. And part of that is because there are three massive air gyres that control the flow of air in North America. There's the Pacific gyre, the one that comes up from the Gulf of Mexico, like the, and then the Atlantic gyre, the North Atlantic one. And in the past, those three big air sheets used to converge sort of over the Midwest. Um, so well south of us, they converged there. And that's where you'd see a lot of tornadoes and, and that kind of activity, sort of more chaotic weather. Um, just in the last decade or so, those air gyres have shifted and they now converge on Lake of the Woods. So we see really chaotic weather patterns here now. Um, we also see that the, you know, the whole polar vortex thing. So that's also another kind of related uh, 
effect where there are changes to atmospheric currents, and in this case, the jet stream, so that it becomes really loose and wobbly, kind of lazy, and it ends up getting stalled out. Uh, and it often stalls out over our region. And so we end up with these like, in the winter in particular, we'll end up with these really long stretches of very deep cold weather. And it's just stalled out. And it's because the jet stream isn't really moving anymore. Um, and that's a climate impact as well. Which doesn't help the global warming argument. No, I mean, it does make everyone think that, oh, well, it's really cold. What the heck? How okay. is it possible that it's getting colder with global warming? But the reason that it's, that it's colder locally here is because it's actually way warmer up north. Yeah. So if you look at the global temperature maps... In the middle of winter, Alaska has no snow anymore. Like the Iditarod dog race, the dog sled race, for the past several years has been run on green grass in parts because there's no snow in the middle of winter in Alaska. Um, the Arctic, like at the North Pole, was like on average 12 to 20 degrees warmer. It's insane. <laughs> it was here during the winter. It is crazy. It's really hot up there, um, and it's still persisting. Like, it's still kind of cold here this summer, and I think that's still part of that same persisting, like, lazy jet stream polar vortex decay phenomenon. Well, I was talking to uh, president of the Bruco yesterday, Taras, mm -hmm. about um, sort of what their feelings are about climate change and what their goals are to um, combat it, I guess. And um, he said they are looking to build a carbon neutral brewery and distillery. Um, and in the next 18 months, move towards solar and inline water tech to generate power and work with water treatment and reclamation green spaces and the revitalization of vacant spaces like the old mill yeah. lot, which is where they're going to be moving their a portion of their production too so i guess that's the kind of thing you want to see companies doing right yeah absolutely and like what would you say to the average person what can we do just as people in our day-to-day -day lives is like if you had like do these top things or something please <laughs> so the number one most important thing you can do is talk about this issue and normalize it as part of conversation. So make it so that it's not something that weird fringe environmentalists talk about. <laughs> make it be the thing that everybody talks about. That's already happening to some extent. Like it is part of like everybody talks about climate change now. Uh, sometimes it's in a negative context. I'd prefer it would be in a more positive one. But uh, good to have everybody talking about it. Number two is you need to talk to your government leaders. So at all levels, city council, the mayor, your MPP, your MP, you need to talk to the people in a position of power who have the ability to make laws and policies that will actually address the systemic roots of this problem. This is not a problem that can be solved by individual actions. It's great to take individual actions. That's really good. Like do what you can to lower your emissions footprint. But the fact is that we need the whole system to change. Mm -hmm. And that's not going to happen if it's just a whole bunch of us working in isolation independently. We need to actually have governments taking the lead and governments need to know that they have the backing of the people who put them in office. So if you aren't talking to your government official, they're going to assume that you don't care about this issue and they're not going to work on it. Um, or they're going to feel like they are vulnerable if they do work on it, which is the kind of frightening position we're in right now in Canada, where we have a federal government that has made 
like, let's be honest, they've made some missteps. <laughs> they've made a number of missteps. But at the same time, they're the government that has put forward the most ambitious climate action that the country's ever seen. So what we're concerned about this year, I think, is that if Canadians elect a government into office that doesn't have climate ambition in their heart, we've lost. Be and it doesn't matter what the government is. We need all all the parties to be, you know, putting their effort into solving this problem. And we don't have time to waste. So hopefully Canadians make that clear to all of their candidates across the political spectrum that that's the expectation they have of them. Um, and then the third thing I think is that, uh, you know, while you're talking to other people, while you're engaging your political leaders, bring other people with you like build the movement <laughs> to make this happen. Don't be a, you know, don't be an individual, be a collective. There's not necessarily a clear victor, but there's definitely a clear loser. So maybe one day together. will be the fossil fuels. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Like with sad. the, with the dinosaurs, it's maybe not that sad. Like if the dinosaurs, <laughs> so the dinosaurs went extinct, right? Yeah. Um, and as did what 95% of all yeah. other species on the planet at the time. And the dinosaurs, you know, dinosaurs were around a lot longer than us. So in some ways it's more sad. And, um, and then it gave a chance for all these new kinds of mammals to emerge, including primates. And now here we are. So mm -hmm. potentially like a lot of people seem kind of down about humanity in general. So, you know, this is the, <laughs> this is the pro extinction argument. <laughs> <laughs> Which is if we go you don't away, have much self interest, do you? <laughs> if we, you're if excited we go away, about the next species, right? So we have like there's a billion years of of uh, water, liquid water on the planet left, basically, right before it evaporates as the the sun increases in temperature by ten percent every yes. billion years, right? <laughs> Um, and so it, there might be enough time for another intelligent species to evolve. Well, I'm sure there's time for something else to evolve. That is the way of life. Like it goes on, evolution continues, new forms emerge, the cosmos collide with the earth and bring in new sparks of life and matter. And yeah, something will replace us. I mean, this is another thing I actually talked to the kids about because they were really trying to understand like, are humans going to go extinct? And maybe. And <laughs> my husband afterward, when I was telling him about this, he said, Oh, God, I know you. You told them that they will. You were totally honest, weren't you? I said, well, yeah, but not in a harsh way. It's true. Every species on the planet goes extinct at some time or it evolves into something new. Like nothing stays static. But these things happen over very long time scales in general, um, like millions of years. So, you know, modern humans have only been around for tens of thousands of years, not millions yet. What if you're a creationist, though? Well, then you have a very different view of how it all works. <laughs> I, I actually have an idea that we might be able to be immortal. So this, like, I know 99 point whatever percent of all species so far have gone extinct. But we have this, uh, we have a chance at leaving this planet. Yeah, I know. Oh, I know. Okay. So, so um, now we're we talking could, oh, about Elon Musk and, uh, not, you know, yeah, and space travel. Yeah. And if we conceptualize ourselves as basically information at yeah. our core. 
then it's possible we can transcend our biology. Well, so this is a really interesting thing. There was actually an episode of Ideas, I think, on CBC Radio that was about this not that long ago. And it was the, you know, it gets into some of the deep philosophy about what is the essence of human life. And, you know, are we just those packets of information? Can we be distilled down into like the data that you could put onto a hard, physical, enduring object? Um, is there value in cryogenically freezing heads <laughs> that people have done uh, to maintain the integrity of the brain? Like, you know, these are all things to think about. But personally, when I think about like my identity and who I am as a human, I feel like there is a, like there's a physical manifestation of me that walks and lives and breathes on the planet. And that one loves to celebrate the richness of the physical reality. And like, I know that's short term. I know that that has a finite lifespan, but I'm here to get the most out of it that I possibly can. I personally feel like there is also a part of me that will endure after that, not necessarily in a religious afterlife sort of way, but... But in a brain in a jar way. No, hopefully not in a brain in a jar way. Oh, nobody wants to see that or have to curate that forever. Um but no, like I think about like the energy that I put into things. So whether that's metaphysical energy, like the goodwill or the legacy of the works that I leave behind, the imprint that I leave on the planet and in my children and all that, my community, there's all that. But there's also like the transmission of the energy that is me that goes back into the matter that makes up the world around me and like you know we are all made of stars <laughs> that sort of thing Literally. like we get recycled and our energies get recycled and so i feel like there is a component of us that yeah is immortal it never goes away because it just gets recycled into whatever comes next mm. so i yeah i feel like i already have a sense of that immortality and the happy way to look at that is the law of conservation of energy angle the unhappy <laughs> is the entropy yes. angle yeah. of everything all energy becomes useless in the end. Should we end the podcast right on that note <laughs> Man, or should we heavy. switch up? <laughs> I was just thinking, I really didn't expect this podcast to go in the directions it did, but well, that's what happens when you're over, over some beers, you know, yeah. this is how it goes. Uh -huh. I, I guess it makes sense that climate change discussions would lead to existentialist discussions. Oh, they totally do. <laughs> I mean, that is the thing that yeah, I think that we all talk about recreationally in the movement. Yeah. Um, and there's actually a big shift right now to be looking at things like how to deal with all the big existential questions that this compels. Because it is <laughs> it's pretty formidable. It's a big wall that we're all staring at. And it makes you think a lot about your mortality and what you leave behind and what your responsibilities are and what the purpose of your life is. <laughs> well, a really narcissistic way to think about... Um, Human human extinction is uh, at least you can feel like you're not going to be missing anything after your life is over because that's the end of the world. <laughs> you uh, all get to humans, go out together, yeah. But I mean, like, what if you're an earthworm? That's true. <laughs> well, I'm not interacting with them enough to. Oh, you should. They're really quite lovely. I got nothing against earthworms. They're just not in my social circle. Oh. They're on your driveway after it rains, though. Oh. That's true. Well, they could be in your garden, too. <laughs> it is. Should we move on to the beer questions? Yeah, we okay. have to. So if you don't know, the beer questions are questions inspired by the names of the beer. Firehouse is their northern English-style nut brown ale. 
Uh, and that's the favorite of, of Braden from the museum. Mm. Um, nice tie back to yeah, the previous that's episode. That's a callback. Yeah. If you haven't listened to the Braden Murray episode, we drank Firehouse on that. <laughs> um, so Firehouse, I, th- I think you'll have a good one for this. Is there something that you wish you could burn down literally or metaphorically? Oh, God, I'm so terrified of fire all the time. Uh, there's not much I think about actually burning down. I feel like nature's taking care of that for us, actually. <laughs> yeah, but metaphorically, like, do, do I you, know you uh, got something. Uh, I got a question about that. Do, do you, when Fort McMurray was burning, <laughs> was there some kind of like poetic justice um aspect to that that appealed to you in some way like if you take yourself away from like these are actual people that their lives are being wrecked but was there there's some kind of like poetry to it that you appreciated in I some way i will say that there was there was a recognition of like the divine irony of the situation there was i got no glee or joy out of that like that's the worst possible thing but it's sort of like you know it feels like Mother Nature is telling you something in the most direct possible way. Surely you must see that there is a problem here with people. And I'm sure they do. Like, I don't know. I, I have learned to be far less judgmental than I used to be. And so I kind of feel like that it's not really fair to place blame on people for, uh, I guess, for the the problems that we have are not on the backs of the people who are working in that town. I guess that's what I would say. And I derive no joy or pleasure out of seeing them suffer. <laughs> but you'd at least maybe think that hopefully this can serve as a, as a wake up call One to the industry. Hope. One would really hope. Although the there heart was of the some, industry is like, on fire. There was some really hideous irony yesterday when Jason Kenney had to cancel the follow up to his Um, repeal of the carbon tax legislation in Alberta because he had to get briefed on the wildfires that were creating the cloying smoke in Alberta, in Edmonton. Um, So, you know. So a lot of people when they're thinking, I mean, we're kind of going back in the conversation, but a lot of people are thinking, well, this is just, that's not the cause of it. Like, yeah, we understand there's a fire and everything, but they're not connecting the dots in the way that environmentalists do. Yeah, that's been an interesting realization, I think, for me, anyhow, in the past couple of years is I think that a lot of us working on this day in and day out assume that the public is more able to cre- to connect those dots than they actually are. Like, people don't necessarily draw the direct connection between the amount of fossil fuel they use and burn and the emissions that come from that and climate change and wildfires and floods, like those things are all interrelated. The more gas you burn, the more you're contributing to making the problem worse. So, so the, the symptom is obviously salient to everyone who's, you know, especially if your house is burning down, mm-hmm. but the, they still, they're not, they don't necessarily, just like we were talking about before, like the average person hasn't researched the climate science on their own. And so when someone comes along and says, oh, this guy is falling or this is, you know, this one, someone might say, oh, well, this is the wrath of God. And I would say, no, I don't, I don't believe that to be mm-hmm. true. Mm-hmm. And so they might feel the same way about the claim of the, mm-hmm. the environment of the, 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 the sky is falling. They may have watched um, uh, Al Gore's film mm-hmm. in 2002. And wasn't the earth supposed to be done by now? Like, mm-hmm. weren't we all supposed to be dead? That's a really big problem, a big risk that the climate movement has run um, is 
raising expectations in that way, like not on what in terms of what we deliver, but in terms of the gloom and doom prophesying. And if it doesn't appear to be coming true, then people don't necessarily believe what we have to say. Um, the end of the world isn't coming fast enough. This is bull. <laughs> but the thing is that on the flip side of that, the change is incremental and it's steady and we adapt. We're very adaptable creatures and we adapt really quickly. And so we accept it as the new normal really, really readily. And I think if you had the opportunity to contrast what seems like normal right now with what was normal 30, 40, or 50 years ago, you'd be kind of shocked actually by how much things have changed. Um, really? I've never heard that perspective before, but it, it makes sense that there's a big difference between something that's incremental and something that happens yeah, like a cliff. So like the metaphor we use all the time is the frog boiling in the pot of water, which is so horrible. No, I love but, that. That's great. But it totally is like how humans are. We don't notice that we're boiling or burning, I guess, in this case. Um, but getting back to your question about what would I want to burn down? I mean, the only thing that I can think of that's an actual target of my ire is uh, bot traffic on the internet. Mm. Honestly, like the way that social media now controls and owns so much of our social discourse and how it has pulled people out of community and been a social isolating factor and created like cells and divisions and silos in our communities. I really dislike that. And you think that's like significantly bot driven? Well, I think that the bots play, play a big role in it, but I think like just there's a corrosive effect of um, of the internet generally, of social media generally. But I mean, like half the internet is run by bots, right? Like yeah. it's fake. <laughs> so yeah, that's probably what I'd like to get rid of. The internet's fantastic as a tool, but when it's used for good. Okay, happy camper, honey brown ale. From Lake of the Woods Bruco. What would be your actual happiest day of your entire life? And this is a horrible question and very <laughs> difficult to answer. But sometimes people come through with with a, something surprising. Because it often is like when you really think about what actually brings you joy, it's not necessarily the things that you imagine. Uh, so I know that the answer that you're supposed to say when you're asked that question is like the birth of my child. But in truth, the birth of both my children though I am eternally grateful for them and love them completely and cherish them and think Wasn't they're a wonderful. Great day. Like, that's a grueling experience. I don't want to really think back on that much. <laughs> it was hard work and not really a lot of fun. So, you know, relief, joy and all that, but definitely not what I would say is like the pinnacle of ultimate happiness in that moment. Um, but what I can think back on as like in the past few years, the super peaks of joy in my life have happened at moments where I have felt really successful in bringing together large groups of people to learn together and share experiences, share common experiences and build bonds and like movement building. I love doing that work. I love bringing people together and just creating spaces where humans can be the best that they can be and they can make magic happen when they come together with the best of intentions. And like having the privilege of being a person who gets to do that for my living, to be like a person who gets to convene those kinds of moments, it's amazing. So yeah, that's definitely the peak of joy. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on yeah, Lake Time. Been a lot of fun. And uh, what's your call to action? 
for the weekend what's yeah for the, yeah, <laughs> for the weekend. yeah what's your just leave it what's your call to action no further explanation. Yeah, no explanation what's your call to action uh my call to action okay from a work perspective it's please get engaged in the federal election that's happening this year it's really probably the most important one of our generation we have like 10 or 11 years left to get global emissions under control so that we can stay within a temperature limit that makes life possible on this planet. Please choose the people who care. Please, please <laughs> engage and vote and get all the people around you to come out and vote for climate action, please. I feel like that's a good end note. That is a good end note. But what about, okay, so there's going to be people who are listening to this, if they made it through all this, all of our nattering about this fake <laughs> oh God, climate change. so all over the map. <laughs> um, the, the person who hears that and says, I still don't believe that this story that you're telling me about that this is important, that the sky is going to fall in 10 years, what should they do? What would you ask them to do? Like, what's the risk of taking action? If you take action and there's no climate change, you're not going to be in a worse off position. You might have cleaner vehicles. You might have like a cleaner energy grid. It's probably not going to cause you a lot of hardship. There's a political cartoon of this that has someone giving the like climate change speech and then someone in the audience is saying, what if all this is a hoax and we just make a better world for nothing? <laughs> so let's make a better world. For no good reason. <laughs> Other than better is... Better is better, better, but by definition, I understand, actually. They may use a synonym in the dictionary, though, just for style. <laughs> I think that's it. That's it. Thank you. That was great. That was a great episode. It could have kept going. Yeah, the social aspect's interesting, the psychology of uh, how people come come into their opinions about it in the first place, and the actual science is, is interesting, too. So uh, let's risk it and just make a better world, because it's... Because a better world is better. Okay, let's do it. Let's do it. Next time. Okay, we'll do it on the next episode. We'll okay. check in again and see if the world's cleaner. We'll see how you're doing. Our lines are open. Until then, leave a message, one 800 Lake time. Stay tuned to find out the results next time on Lake Time. <laughs>